the bad news that every single person in the world deserves God's judgment. And then uh, beginning in chapter 3 and then in chapter 4 is all about how though we are all guilty before God, we can receive salvation through Jesus Christ. He died for us. He became sin for us. And we now receive His gift of grace, His gift of salvation as a gift. We receive it by faith. We don't work for it. We don't try and earn it. We passively accept it. And that being established in chapters 1 to 4, now in chapters 5 to 8, Paul is going to give the benefits, the outcomes of this wonderful salvation we have by faith. You can see there in verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. And then really that's all of chapters 5 through 8 is because we have been justified by faith now what? What are the wonderful blessings we now enjoy? And that's really what it is all about. It's about the wonderful blessings that we now have as Christians. And so I'm very excited uh, for this to look at these first five verses, but then to look at, at all of these chapters. They're all about the Christian life. And they're all about hope, ultimately. The hope that we have in this life, but most of all in the life to come. And how that hope colors our lives here on earth. So let me go ahead and read verses 1 to 5. And what we're going to see this morning are four benefits of our salvation. And then these will be uh, explained, gone down into with depth in the coming chapters. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The first benefit you can see that we have because we have been justified. And justified means we are made right before God. We are forgiven of our sins. We are reconciled to God. The first benefit is peace with God. And that word peace, um, what it means here, and really what it means all throughout the Bible, is on one hand it does mean peace as we think of peace. When we say peace, we mean not war, right? Uh, when we think of peace, we mean a lack of conflict. And that's certainly what Paul means here. We have peace with God. We're no longer fighting with him. There is no war between us. But even more than that, peace is relying on the Hebrew word for peace. Does anyone know what the Hebrew word for peace is? It's uh, probably one of the few Hebrew words people know about. No? Shalom. Yeah, exactly. Is Shalom in here today? Uh, shalom. And what shalom means is not just peace, it means harmony. It doesn't mean people just aren't fighting with each other, but it means that everyone is, is working together perfectly. It's a perfect fit. Everyone accentuates each other's strength. And of course, the word harmony, it's a, a musical term, so I'll kind of demonstrate what harmony means by talking about a guitar. So uh, when you know I play guitar up here, when Karen plays guitar, 
we are playing um, not just one note. Uh, we're not just going like this. That would be just playing one note, one G. Instead, you can see we play a, a few notes all at once. And that's not just G, that's G, B, and D. And it comes together, though, and it sounds very natural, right? It sounds like it all goes, goes together, and it does. It's harmony. What's actually pretty cool is that these three notes that, uh, that are being played right now, G, B, and D, they all naturally come together. So if in nature, if you were in a, a really good amphitheater that had great acoustics, and you sang a G, you would hear back B and D. And so the reason it sounds so natural to you is it's a natural harmony. These notes naturally come together and they accentuate each other and they make each other uh, more pronounced and beautiful. On the other hand, uh, you want to hear some disharmony. Uh, here we go. It's disharmony. That's also notes that if put in the right order would sound beautiful and nice, but those notes aren't in harmony with each other. Now the G sharp and the D sharp, or the F sharp and the G there, those aren't in harmony, and so they make this terrible sound. So you could think about, when it talks about here, peace with God, what we have through Jesus Christ is we have harmony with, through God. Before Christ, when we were dead in our sins, we were at war with God, and this was our relationship with God. We were existing, but it was causing conflict, dissonance. It was chaos. But then now, because of what Christ has done, He has brought us to God. He has put us in a proper relationship with God. And so now our relationship is beautiful. It's harmonious. If you have believed in Christ, if His sins have covered you, you now have peace with God. You have harmony with Him. And that harmony with Him then brings peace all in the rest of your life, really. It brings inner peace too. Uh, but to, to talk about a little bit more, what does it mean to have peace with God? Because I'll say this, what all of you want is peace with God. That's the truth. Whether you think of it or not, what every person wants is harmony with the creator of the universe. And I'll give a little illustration of what it would mean um, to lack peace in your life with the other people in your life, just to demonstrate what it means to not have peace with God. So I'll kind of give a day in the life of a... Uh, unpeaceful person, someone who lacks peace with their parents, with their siblings, dog, etc. Uh, this is the day in the life. Uh, you come downstairs and you don't have peace with your parents. And so you don't talk to them. You ignore them. You kind of just shuffle over and, and pour your cereal. And your parents, they don't have peace with you, but they tell you to take out the trash. It's your responsibility. But you don't have peace with them. You don't have harmony with them you're kind of in conflict. And so you take their command as an act of aggression. You think they're trying to bother you and ruin your life. So you respond with anger and they say, that's it, you're punished tonight, no video games. Great, it's the morning, you've already lost your favorite thing in life. Then uh, you go to get your cereal from the cupboard and you notice that your cereal's gone. Your sibling, you're not at peace with them. And so they went ahead and took a double unnatural portion of cereal so that you wouldn't have any left. Uh, you uh, walk by your dog and you don't have peace with your dog so your dog snarls at you and tries to bite you and by the time you have to go get your stuff for school your dog's in the way and you spend three minutes trying to figure out how to get around your dog that's snarling at you you finally get your stuff you go to class and you're not at peace with your teacher and so your teacher's doing something on the board they hear someone talking it's not you but they assume it's you because 
they're not at peace with you. And so they yell at you, hey, you make that sound one more time, and you're going to the principal's office. Uh, then the teacher says, all right, it's time for a group assignment. You moan because you don't have peace with your uh, classmates. You know that no one likes you. And so you're left with the other kids that no one likes. They all slack off. You have to do all the work, and you still know you're going to get a D at best. Uh, you come home, and you don't even have peace with the fellow drivers on the road. They cut you off. They honk at you. They slam on their brakes in front of you. You get home. You don't even have peace with your computer. You type your assignment, and halfway through it dies on you, and you can't turn it back on. It's a day in the life without peace. That's what it would mean to not be harmonious with the other people in your life, even the things in your life. Compare this to a life in which you had total peace. You had peace with your parents. So you come down, you have a great relationship with them. Uh, they encourage you for your day. They help you get ready for the day. And you have a great relationship with them. When, so when they say, hey, can you take out the trash real quick? You're happy to do it. You have a great relationship with them. You're happy to serve them in return. You have peace with your siblings. And so what happened earlier that morning is they saw that there wasn't much cereal left and they didn't eat cereal because they knew that that's, you would want the cereal. They had some fruit instead. You could still enjoy your breakfast. Your dog is at peace with you, so it comes and lays down next to you. Your teacher is at peace with you. So when you come in and say, hey, I had some trouble with my homework. Um, I couldn't do all the questions. I was kind of confused. She says, that's okay. Uh, I trust you. I know you tried your best. Uh, it's right. I'll, I'll give you a pass on the assignment. You have peace with your classmates. And so when the teacher says there's a group assignment, uh, your friends all clamor to work with you and you have a great time mutually helping each other. Now, these scenarios, they might be a reminder for you that you need to have better relationships in your life. That's well and good, but that's not really the point. The point is that if lacking peace with these people in your life would cause so much trouble, would make your life so miserable... How much more does a lack of peace with God mean? If you don't have peace, if you don't have harmony with your Creator, what that would mean is that you would, could be, and indeed probably should be, interpreting everything in your life that's bad as an act of God's aggression. Not only the bad things in your life, but even your commands. You're not at peace with Him, so you think He's always trying to get you. He's always trying to hurt you. He's always trying to mess up your plans. And so that means that when you're looking towards the future, you have anxiety. You can't resolve that anxiety because you don't know if things are going to work out well. God's not on your side. In fact, you know you're in conflict with him. So you don't have peace about the future. You know everything could fall apart. Because you don't have peace with God, it means you don't have peace with his creation with his creatures. And so you do fight the people around you. You do fight your parents. You do fight your classmates. You fight nature. And so you have constant anxiety and fighting in your life. That's what life is like if you don't have peace, harmony with God. And it ought to be that way. If God is your enemy, if you haven't been reconciled to him, you have done the worst thing imaginable. Well, that we all have, but it's still the worst. You have made your creator your enemy. And that's how we all once lived our lives. We were all once in this miserable state where our creator and benefactor who blesses us with everything, we had made our enemy. A futile, stupid task. But as this verse says, 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, we now have peace with God. We now have harmony with him. And so now we interpret everything in our life as an act of God's love. We know he's on our side. We know he's working with us and for us. It means that we know now that everything in our life will work out for good because we have peace with the God of the universe. And therefore, we also accept the world as it is. We accept nature. We accept the people in our life, the circumstances in our life, because we have peace with the God who made those things and put those people in our life. And it means that you have inner peace because you are know, know that you are right with the God of the universe. That's our first benefit that we have because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our mediator. He stands between us and God and he brings us back together and he brings us peace and harmony. It's the first blessing. It's the first thing that you as a Christian can enjoy, should rejoice in as you leave today. You have peace and harmony with the God of the universe. Whatever else is going on in your life, whatever whatever other discord and anxiety is in your life, you are right with God. The second benefit is similar, and it says here in verse 2 that through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So saying the second benefit is that we now stand in God's grace. And the way I put it as point number two is favor from God. Um, I use the word favor because that's a, um, another acceptable way to translate the Greek word charis, that's usually translated grace, you can also translate it favor. As an example, there's a famous verse about Jesus' childhood, Luke 2.53. It says that Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and men. That's as he grew up, um, God was pleased with him, other people were pleased with him. And the word there is just the word for grace. So you could also translate that verse as he grew in grace with God and men. The point just being, that that Greek word for grace, it can also mean favor, that someone looks upon you fondly. Someone looks upon you desiring to bless you and give you something good. And that's, that's the point, that through Jesus' death and resurrection and through the gift of justification we receive by faith, we are now in God's favor. He now looks upon us with love and kindness. And because of that, God if you are at peace with him, if you are in his favor and grace, he truly desires to bless you at every point. He's not trying to just appease you, give enough good stuff to keep you off his back. He has made you and saved you to love you and bless you. He doesn't have any other purpose. He doesn't need you. He made you to love you and bless you. And this is what scripture says all over the place. I'll I'll read a few wonderful promises about how blessed we are being in God's favor. Ephesians 1.3 says that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's not one spiritual blessing that God withholds from us. Listen to Psalm 84.11. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And if you have been made upright because of his son's death, there is no good thing God withholds from you. Uh, and another psalm, God says, open your mouth and I will fill it. He says, just tell me what you need. Ask for what you need and I'm going to give it to you. 
And then the, the end of this section that starts in these verses is the end of Romans 8. Romans 8, uh, about 28 to 38. And listen to the wonderful promise of Romans 8, 32. He who gave up his own son, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? If we are in God's favor, if we are in his grace, he's going to give us every gift that he can give us. I'll give you guys a bit of business advice. If you've never heard the phrase before, you'll hear it now. Uh, The secret to a successful career is not what you know, but who you know. Uh, The American business complex is based on relationships. Most people have the jobs they have because they know somebody. Um, And so, you know, keeping that principle in mind, you imagine. uh, Imagine if I was friends with Elon Musk. Imagine if for whatever reason he just really liked me and I had his favor, I had his grace. I'd, ha- I'd be a happy guy, wouldn't I? I'd have a good life if the richest man uh, in the world had his favor on me. I wouldn't ever have to worry about um, money, uh, probably any good job opportunity that would ever arise. I would have an opportunity to apply for it. I'd get to go on all kinds of cool vacations, meet cool people. If I needed some business advice, I'd have wonderful advice right at my hand. I'd have a really good life if I was in Elon Musk's favor, right? We can all agree, you too. Okay, so if having Elon Musk's favor would be really good for my life, how much more to have the favor of the God of the universe? How much better is that for your life? How much more blessed and happy are you because of that? And you ought to rejoice in that. Just think about how happy would I be if Elon Musk wanted to bless me? Okay, now do way more than that. The God of the universe, if you are in Christ, does want to bless you. You are in his favor, and you should be rejoicing in that. Point number three is, is there in, uh, at the end of verse two, where it says that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so point number three is joy in hope. We have a hope that someday we will share in God's glory. God's glory, it's a very general and vague term. What it, God's glory just means is the stuff that makes God what He is. God is the fountain and creator of everything good. He is infinite and eternal. Words cannot express just how blessed and happy and giving of joy he is. And all of that stuff that makes him so wonderful and awesome and loving, we could just summarize that in one word as his glory. And what Paul says is that our hope is that we will have the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That is, that someday God is going to share his glory with us. His infinite, eternal, perfect glory that makes him so wonderful, we will partake of it. That's what uh, Second Peter says that we are partakers of the divine nature through eternity. Um, the theological word is that we will have the beatific vision. No one ever says beatific. Beatific just means happy. It's the happy vision. Someday, for eternity, if you are in Christ, you will look at God and be perfectly happy. You will see His glory, and that's what our hope is: that someday we will see God for an eternity and become like God for an eternity and that's our hope and that's what brings us joy now 
and that we have hope in the glory of God. This is a reversal of the phrase for Paul. This was the third time Paul's mentioned God's glory in Romans. In chapter 1, he said that the pagans have exchanged the glory of God for the glory of creatures. In Romans 3, Paul said that we fell short of the glory of God. But now, through Christ, we have been reconciled with God, and so we now have an eager expectation that we will know and receive God's glory. And it is that hope that brings us joy. Um, Indeed, in the Christian life, that is our primary source of joy, is the hope that we are very soon going to experience infinite and eternal joy. And this cannot be taken away from us. It's right around the corner. And all of you know the, the joy that hope can produce in your life. Everyone knows that um, if you have ever had a really wonderful, happy, joyful thing in your life, you know that the joy wasn't just confined to the moment when you're experiencing it. That joy extends to even right before you experience it. Uh, when I was in high school, I, uh, I really loved England and Europe in general. And so all throughout high school and college, I wanted to go to Europe so bad. And I finally did when I was uh, my senior year. I was 21, and I'd spent the semester in Israel. And I was going to go for a week uh, in Paris to, to Paris and then England. And the flight over there from Israel to Paris, it was some of the happiest hours of my whole life. I, I still wasn't in France yet. I hadn't really experienced the thing that I was excited for. But the hope that it was finally about to happen, I was finally going to be... In Europe, I was finally going to be in France. I was elated. I was trying to talk in French to the uh, where the stewardesses. Uh, I was just uh, looking at everything out the window. That's the coolest cloud I've ever seen. That's the coolest uh, island I've ever seen. Look at that mountain. This is unbelievable. I was so happy. And it's the same thing. This is this is our life as Christians. Yeah, it's a, a boring airline flight. It's a boring existence here on Earth. But it's not boring. Because right around the corner is the most amazing, wonderful thing. It's going to happen so soon. And that should fill every day of your life with joy. It's right around the corner. Uh, There's a quote from C.S. Lewis. I I don't know if I shared it with you before. Uh, C.S. Lewis is always the author that helps stoke the fires in my heart of excitement for heaven the most. Uh, This this is my favorite quote about it, though, from him. Uh, he, He wrote this to somebody... Uh, about a year before he died and right before this woman he was writing to was about to die and he said we are like a seed patiently waiting in the earth waiting to come up a flower in the gardener's good time up into the real world the real waking i suppose that our whole present life look back on from there will seem only a drowsy half waking we are here in the land of dreams but cockrow is coming i just love that image that our existence on life is like a seed in the dirt. And just above us is a beautiful garden. And very soon, though we're an ugly brown seed right now, we're going to be a beautiful flower. We're here in the land of different shades of brown, and that's what we enjoy. We say, oh, look at that nice rock, and look at that worm. Life's pretty good here in the dirt. It's not, though. It's not that great. It's pretty lame. An eternity of infinite joy is right around around the corner, and that is what really matters. That is what's really important. 
and your experience there is going to put everything in here as such a minor perspective. You're going to look back on there and think, why, why was I ever sad? I knew that this was right around the corner, yet I got caught up with all the silly small things of my life. You should be rejoicing if you are in Christ because of the hope that you have, that you are about to share in God's infinite eternal glory. You don't even have words for it. It's going to bend your mind. It's going to be the biggest trip of all time. Perfect joy right around the corner. And this then leads us to the, the final point, though. Hope and trouble. Paul says, somewhat surprisingly in verse 3, that not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know, Paul paints a really rosy picture. He says, We have harmony with God, we have God's favor. The ultimate hope is right around the corner. Our life should be wonderful. And indeed they should. But then we can read that and think, okay, but still my life isn't entirely wonderful. Uh, There's still a lot of really genuinely sad and hard things about life here on earth. It's not that everything's just perfect now. So what about the hard stuff in life? What about the troubles? And Paul's not ignorant of that. But he kind of flips it on its head. He says, uh, yeah, yeah, sure, I know there's still trouble, but you know what? Even those troubles are now a cause for joy because we are in Christ. How so? Well, in short, the more trouble we have, the more hope we have. And as we just learned, the more hope we have, then the more joy we have. It works like this, Paul says. He says, trouble produces endurance. As with pretty much anything in life, as you are tested and strained, you grow stronger. The most obvious illustration is of muscles. What happens when you lift weights is you are straining and tearing the muscles in your arms. But as you tear them, as you strain those muscles, they will heal and become stronger. You will gain endurance such that if you go and do the same exercise a week later, you will not tear as much. You will not strain as much. You'll be able to endure the testing even longer. And that's the same thing with trouble in our lives if we are in Christ. When trouble comes, it might strain us, it might tear us a little bit, but it will ultimately just make us stronger. It will give us more endurance. The next time that trial comes along, we will be able to endure much better. And then Paul says this endurance that we gain, it then produces character. And actually, the Greek word is a more specific uh, term than just character. It's proven character. It's a display of character, a verification of character. That's what endurance produces. You know what your strength is, you know what your character is, because you went through the testing, and then you saw that you could stand it. Uh, There's no... Character doesn't really matter if life is easy. Anyone can have good character when life is easy. That really means nothing. Uh, Sometimes when people say, I'm sorry I was acting that way, I'm sorry I was impatient, I'm sorry I was harsh, I'm sorry I was stressed, Um, it's just that life is really stressful right now. Okay, yes, exactly. All of us are very fine when everything's going well. The test of character is, well, what are you like when hard stuff happens? 
Jesus gives this famous illustration in Matthew 7 of the different houses built on different foundations. And they all look fine when it's 74 with a two mile an hour breeze. You find out the difference in the houses when the floods rise and the storms come. And the tempest beats on the house. Then the house that's built on sand collapses, but the house built on stone stands. You only know what your character actually is. You can only prove your character when you go through something hard, when you are tested. If you are not tested, if everything is perfect and rosy, then you are not able to display the character that you have. John Piper gave the, the illustration that imagine if there was a, a glass of water. My glass of water will be up here. Imagine this is flat. And he said, uh, you know, imagine if there's, there's dirt in the cup, tea, whatever, some kind of, uh, you know, substance there in the glass of water. If you just leave it sitting there for long enough, all of the stuff is going to float down to the bottom. And so you could look at this cup and it could seem perfectly clean and pure if it's just sitting there and nothing's touching it. But then if it is a dirty cup with a bunch of dirt at the bottom, what's going to happen when you just knock the cup a little bit? All that dirt is going to come flying up. That's us. You can seem really happy and a good kid and trustworthy and etc. etc. when nothing bad happens to you. But what happens when you're just a little bit disturbed? What happens when things don't go your way? What happens when you're mistreated? What happens when you're overlooked? All that sin comes out, doesn't it? All that stuff at the bottom comes rising up. And the thing is, as Christians, we're getting rid of that dirt. We still have some of the dirt, but as we grow through the Holy Spirit inside of us, that dirt is less and less. And so what happens is that as we grow in Christ, we are going to be hit by things, And not that much dirt's going to come up. And what we're going to do is we're going to prove that we are truly pure. We're not just pure when we're just sitting there and no one touches us, but even when things don't go our way, we display our character. We display that we are truly pure. So endurance produces character. And then finally, proven character produces hope. That you are able to live righteously, that you are able to respond in a Christ-like manner, that shows you and the whole world that God has truly changed you, that the Holy Spirit is truly inside of you, that you are truly clean because of Christ's ministry, that you are one of His children. And that display of character then reminds you, yes, that you are one of His children, and so hope is right around the corner. Very soon He's going to finalize the adoption, and you are going to know Him truly as your Father forever. And so... This trouble actually just increased your joy because it increased your hope. So yes, you you all face troubles of various kinds in your life right now. And I'll tell you as an absolute certainty, you are going to face trouble in your life. Says the book of Job, as sparks fly upwards, so man is born to trouble. You have a bunch of stuff coming in your life that's going to be really hard and it won't be fair. As a Christian, though, you can look forward to it actually with joy. Because you say, I I know God's Spirit is inside of me, and so I know He's going to help me respond in a Christ-like way, and that's actually just going to increase my hope and my joy more and more. That hard time is going to show that you have a supernatural life inside of you, that you have a supernatural foundation. Think of it this way. 
Uh, you, you don't want an easy life free of trouble, just like um, I don't play Sudoku on easy. You guys probably all have a game, a puzzle you like. I like to play Sudoku every now and then. And when I do it, I don't do it on easy. Why? It would be a waste of time. Uh, it's simple. It's straightforward. What's fun is when it's challenging. What's fun is when I have to use all the strategies I've learned to figure out how to complete it. That's what's fun is when I have to actually demonstrate that I have some kind of extra ability with Sudoku. If I did it on easy, that's something an eight-year-old could do. It's the same thing. As a Christian, we are ready for bad things to happen to us, for life to be hard, because then we can show the supernatural character inside of us. Yes, I can be mistreated. I can have my, the things in life taken away from me, and I can still rejoice. Why? Because I am not just like every other person on earth. I'm not just like every other natural human being. I have been renewed and regenerated. I am like Christ. And so even when hard things come, I can remain calm, collected, peaceful, trusting in Christ. And these hard times are just going to increase my hope, and therefore they will increase my joy. And uh, this final part of uh, point four, hope and trouble, is there in verse 5. It says that hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We have all this hope in Christ. And we know that God's not going to let us down. We are counting on Him to make everything right, to make everything worth it, to treat us truly and ultimately as His children. And we know that He's not going to let us down. And what Paul says, the token that we know He's not going to let us down someday is because we know His love in our hearts right now. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit has been given to you. And the Holy Spirit inside of you makes you aware on a deep spiritual, emotional level that God loves you. And so you love to sing about God's love. You might lack the words to express it, but you you just know how much God loves you and it's the most amazing thing. That's what Paul says. As Christians, we have this subjective knowledge of God's love. We know in our hearts how God cares for us. How He gives us everything we need. And though it's subjective, it can't be tested in a science experiment. That doesn't mean it's not real. It is real. The reality is the Holy Spirit is inside of you telling you at the spiritual level how God loves you. And what Paul is saying is is that that subjective experience of God's love right now That's a sign to you that God's never going to let you down. You know his love now, even in this difficult and trying world. And someday you're going to know it perfectly. Right now his love is largely a promise to you. But very soon he is going to come through on his promise. And none of us who trust in him, who rejoice and hope in him, are going to be let down. None of us will be ashamed. And in conclusion, I, I want to make a, a simple point. That Christianity is a religion of joy. Christianity is a religion of joy. Christianity is not about carrying this burden of all of God's rules and sacrificing our happiness so that we won't get burned for eternity. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is 
turning from all of our selfish misery and knowing infinite and eternal joy. And so if you are a Christian, I have a very direct question for you. Are you rejoicing? Are you living a life of joy? And by joy, I don't just mean happiness. I don't just mean, do you have a happy disposition? Are you a fun person? That's not what I mean. Joy is something deep. Do you have a deep happiness and joy in your life that you are one of God's children? That's his design for the Christian life. If, you're Christ, if you do not associate joy with Christianity, then you are misunderstanding Christianity. Turn to John chapter 15, verse 11. I want you to hear very clearly and directly what Jesus' own intention for your Christian life is. John 15, verse 11. I actually read uh, this verse on Friday night. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Is Christ's joy in you? Is your joy full? Know that if you are his child and you're not finding this joy in him, it's your fault. It's not Christ's. What he wants is for you to rejoice and know him. And the reason he puts all these commands on you, the reason he tells you these things, is not to take away your joy. It's not to use you, but it's because these are the commands to joy. He knows this is the only way to be happy is by enjoying this. It's like yesterday I had to tell my son to take a bite of the shave ice. I said it for his joy. I knew he was going to love it. He did. All of God's commands in your life, they might seem hard in the moment. They might seem difficult. They are, they can be difficult, but he says them to you for your joy. And so this week, let your life be defined by the joy that you can have in Christ because of the hope that you have in Christ because you have been reconciled to him. Let me pray.